have gotten enough to encourage our hearts if we did leave right now, I think. But there is more. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn in it to chapter 2 of First Peter. If you don't have one, the text will be on the screen. But our text this morning is verses 18 to 25 as we continue to go through this letter. Peter wrote it to the dispersed church in the first century, but it applies to us in the 21st century. We're going to get right into it. I'm going to read 1 Peter 2, 18 to 25, and then ask for God's blessing on understanding it. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. So we direct our hearts to you, shepherd, overseer, our God who is over us and who has shown your love to us through sending your Son, who bore our sins in his body on the tree. And so we want you to be honored, Lord, by, by re us receiving that and responding to that appropriately and in worship. So, Lord, would you fill us today again afresh with the wonder of the cross, the wonder of forgiveness of sin, the, the wonder of mercy through Jesus. And show us how that makes a difference in our life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, this passage continues a theme that started in verse 13, which is that believers in Jesus Christ are to be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. And it's about how we relate to people who have authority in our lives. So last week, we looked at our relationship with those in positions of authority in civil government. And he mentioned the emperor and governors. How do we relate to them? Now Peter moves on from emperors and governors to an authority that's closer to home, one you deal with personally, frequently, which is your employer. 
He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. There's a correlation between that and what we now know as our workplace. We're going to learn this morning what God has to say about your relationship with your boss and your demeanor at your workplace. But this passage is about more than that. Because in the process of talking about the workplace, Peter touches on a subject that goes well beyond it, something that every one of us is going to encounter at some point, which is unjust suffering. This is a gracious thing, he says, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. This is a passage to give you strength and encouragement every time you're accused of something that you didn't do. Every time you're taken advantage of. Every time you're mistreated. Every time you're reviled for being a Christian. For every time you're just trying to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and something wrong is done to you for it, Peter gives us what we need in order to get through that. This week I watched with admiration the testimony of Rachel Denhollander at the sentencing of Larry Nasser. He's the former Team USA gymnastics doctor who molested her 16 years ago at his office at Michigan State University. And though she suffered unjustly and grievously, watched as she held out to him the hope of the gospel and extended to him forgiveness for what he did. And I look at that and I say, I want to have that kind of strength. I want to have that sort of demeanor, that sort of confidence in God that she has. And we can have strength like that. When you are wronged, when you suffer unjustly, and Peter tells us how. So let's start with the command and the immediate setting, which is about our relationship to earthly masters. Command is in verse 18. It says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Be subject to your masters with all respect. Some of your translations might say slaves. Be subject to your masters. And the reason for the different words used is because the position that Peter is thinking of here doesn't have an exact equivalent in our Western society. The Greek word is oiketes, a household slave. They were slaves in that they served involuntarily. They were considered the legal possession of their masters. They weren't free to just go and do whatever they wanted to. But they weren't slaves as we think of slaves in our own country's history. Stacked like cargo in slave ships, shackled with chains, treated brutally, abused, considered lower than humans. Slaves in the first century Roman Empire were for the most part treated well. They were paid for their services. They could expect eventually to purchase their freedom. And they were not only unskilled laborers who did cooking and cleaning, they could be teachers, they could be musicians, financial managers, even doctors, nurses. Think of a person like Joseph in Potiphar's house. 
He was highly skilled and trusted to the whole estate by his master, had free reign of the place, and yet wasn't completely free. That's more like the first century slave. So the position is something more than a servant, but less than a slave as we understand American slavery. So our nearest equivalent is that of an, un, of an employed person who's working for a boss. They pay you to do a useful service. And because of that contractual relationship, you're not completely free to do whatever you like. There are expectations and there are demands that are placed on you, expectations about what you'll do. You're not exactly a permanent slave, though, except that sometimes you might feel like it, depending on where you work. You could move on to something else. So Peter's counsel to first century servants applies in our context to 21st century employees. And to Christian employees in particular, he says this, be subject to your masters with all respect. That is, recognize the place of authority that they have over you. They have authority to give you work to do. They have authority to expect your compliance with company policy. They have authority to expect your diligent labor in exchange for their pay. Yield to their leadership and direction. That's wrapped up in that word, be subject. And you do that with all respect. And the word is literally fear. The same word Peter uses in 117 for the fear of God carries with it a sense of healthy regard for your employer's position over you and the potential consequences that would come from disrespecting them and not doing your job. Maybe the easiest way to picture this relationship that he's commending to us is picture the opposite. Think about the employee who regularly comes in late and half the day's texting or looking at Facebook or scrolling through blogs. He's not getting his work done. He doesn't pay all that much attention to what the boss is saying, what management wants. Peter says, don't be that guy. <laughs> Employers can't stand that guy. <laughs> I like one translation of Proverbs 10.26, which says, Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the slacker to the one who sends him on an errand. <laughs> they can't stand an employee that you can't trust to do anything. Be the opposite, Peter's saying. Do the work that's given to you. Listen to instructions. Treat those who supervise you with respect. Be subject to your masters. Okay, so that's pretty clear. That's what we're supposed to do. Now comes the challenging part. Because he says, do this not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. <laughs> not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. If you're blessed with a boss who has a good heart, <laughs> who really cares about you as a person and doesn't treat you just as a cog in the machinery, um, if he's gentle with you, hard, not harsh, not yelling at you all the time, wonderful. Um, you are to be congratulated. Makes life a whole lot easier, doesn't it? Uh, I've had bosses like that. In December, I had this 
opportunity came out of nowhere. I got an email that there was a reunion of my old analytical laboratory at the company I used to work for. And I had, I had an evening to do it, and we had points on our, on, for Southwest. So I flew back to Minneapolis, and I went to this little reunion, and my old bosses were there, both now retired, and it was genuinely good to see them again. Uh, we had good memories. I had, I had great bosses. God was very kind to me. It was not hard to be subject to them with all respect. Peter says, that's not the challenge. He says, that's easy. Anybody can do that. The challenge is to be subject with respect to your employers who are unjust. Literally, who are crooked. The word there is scolios, from which we get the word scoliosis, an unnatural curvature of the spine. Peter says, be subject to bosses who are crooked. They're dishonest. They're morally corrupt. They do you injustice. This is about respectful treatment of bosses who don't pay you for all of your overtime because they're greedy. Be subject to bosses who pass over you for promotion because they want to give it to their drinking buddy. Who yell at you constantly. Who blame you for other people's mistakes. Be subject with all respect to that boss. <laughs> He's probably thinking of those who take offense at your Christianity, that that's why they treat you that way. But it's not limited to just that. It applies to any situation where you're treated unfairly, where one over you is unjust. Well, what do we naturally want to do in a situation like that? How do we want to react to that? We want to lash out, don't we? We want to do something about it. That's wrong. That shouldn't happen. And I'm going to speak up. And I'm going to do something to change this. That's our natural response. And so we've got complaining. Um, even in the place I used to work, which is a great place to work, everybody's complaining. I remember when I left, they were like, you're my hero. You finally got out of here. I'm like, this wasn't a bad place. <laughs> But it's in our hearts. Slander, bitter words, passive rebellion, looking for ways to stick it to the man. All this kind of stuff happens because you have an unjust boss. Sometimes you even hear about the employee who goes on a rampage. That's been in the news before. Comes back to his workplace, shoots the place up. Because he got it into his head that anything is justifiable if I've been wronged. <clears throat> Peter says, you're not to be like that as God's people. This is where you have an opportunity to show the difference that Jesus Christ makes in your life. It's when you've been wronged, it's when you've been mistreated, when you've been falsely accused and you don't retaliate, but rather you do, verse 19, you endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. That's when non-believers can see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Verse 12, that might be the thing that shows them there really is a God who could make you act that way when I know what you really would want to do, what I would want to do. This is our opportunity. They expect you to grumble. They expect you to get mad. They expect you to demand your rights. But if they see you still being subject, 
being respectful, it begs the question, why? What makes you different? And there's the opportunity to draw attention to Jesus Christ. This is a response of meekness that Peter is calling for. Remember Jesus in the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That means you're not always grasping after your rights. How dare you take that from me? No, meekness doesn't do that. Meekness endures. Meekness perseveres. Meekness is patience, even when you've been wronged. Now, I should insert something here so we don't misunderstand. This is not to say that there's never a time to seek justice if what's being done to you especially is illegal. God is a God of justice. We saw in the previous verses, one of the functions of government is to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. It's the grace of God that we live in a society that offers recourse to those who are seriously wronged. That is a good function of government. And as we saw last week, it also doesn't mean that you do whatever your boss tells you to do, even when it requires you to sin. Because we must obey God rather than men. Neither does it mean that you can't remove yourself from a bad situation. This is where the employee connection breaks down a little bit from Peter's original context. The servants that he was talking to had no recourse to leave <laughs> until the day that they could finally purchase their freedom. But if they had an unjust master who beat them, they had to stay there. So it isn't exactly like your situation. You can find another job, Lord willing. You can move on. You can make a change. But this is about the heart. This is about what do you do with your personal offense at being sinned against and being treated unjustly? Particularly if that person who did it is over you and, can't, and you can't necessarily change things. Do you do what even a non-believer does or do you respond differently? The Lord would have us endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. Endure it whether that's in the workplace or any other setting in life, especially when you're mistreated for your Christian faith and witness, which is probably what Peter has mostly in mind here. So we're going to need some help if we're going to do this. I think that sounds very difficult to do. How do I endure sorrows without blowing my top? How do I not grumble? How do I not react in, in road rage, so to speak? Give me some help here. God gives us help. God is merciful. God knows our hearts. He knows our struggles. He knows what's hard for us. So he immediately gives us what we need. And it all is tied up in this phrase from verse 19, mindful of God. Again, verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Being mindful of God is what makes all the difference. It's what makes it possible to endure. If God's not in the picture, we will not endure. But when he comes back into the picture, when we are mindful, when we remember him, who he is, what he's done, then we can endure with hope. I see three things in the text 
that Peter wants us to be mindful of related to God that will help us to endure. Anytime we suffer unjustly, this knowledge will come to our aid. So here's the first thing that will help us to endure unjust suffering. Number one, knowing that God will reward you for it. Knowing that God will reward you for it. Again, verse 19, this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. This is a gracious thing, he says. The original Greek simply says, this grace. (laughs) And so we have to fill in verbs (laughs) and things like that. Uh, He says it again at the end of verse 20, this grace in the presence of God. So some translate it as, this finds God's favor. Or others, it is commendable. Or even, God is pleased with you. This main idea is that you're doing something that God loves and for which you will be rewarded if you endure unjust suffering mindful of God. You will be rewarded for that. God loves to see that. He, is, he commends that. He favors that. Because he uses a contrast in verse 20. He says, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. In other words, if you slack off at your job and you do a bad job and you get in trouble for that, there's no credit for that. There's no special honor in that. That's just suffering. (laughs) That's deserved suffering. But if you do a good job, and you still get in trouble, and you endure that, mindful of God, then this is a gracious thing. You get credit for that. You do get special honor and recognition from God for that. It's a principle that God rewards faithfulness. He loves to be generous to those who are mindful of Him. Not because we deserve it, Because our good deeds merit God's favor. They don't. In ourselves, we are sinful. In ourselves, we have done many bad things for which we do deserve punishment. So God would not be doing anything unjust to punish us for our bad works, of which we have many. But God is gracious. He loves to credit us. He loves to benefit us, to honor us when we do something right. You know what a good parent would do for their child? Let's say you have a 10-year-old daughter and you come into the house and she runs up to you and she says, come and see my room. (laughs) And so you go, okay, let's go see your room. And you go up to the room and, and it's all tidied up and clean and everything's put in its place. And she goes, see see how clean it is? So what are you going to say as a parent? You're not going to say, So what? That's what you're supposed to do. I asked you to do that three days ago. You don't do that. What do you say? You say, great job! That is cool! That's amazing! Look at this place! Let's go get some ice cream! (laughs) Why do you do that? Because you want to encourage obedience. Yeah, she should have done it anyway. But when you encourage it with your praise, 
with your special honor, you want to do it again. God is like that. God motivates us that way. He, he loves his people who are his own possession. And yes, we should obey God, including we should obey this command to be subject to your masters with all respect. He wouldn't need to add anything to that. The command is enough. And yet, he says, this is a gracious thing. I give you special honor when you do that. I'm proud of you. Good job. He rewards it. It may not be immediately. It may be in heaven where you see what that reward looks like. Don't expect a raise just because you, got the, you did the right thing. There's no room for a prosperity gospel here that says if you do what's pleasing to God, he will reward you with money and recognition and, and position. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God, but not necessarily in the sight of man. Peter writes this encouragement because you often don't get any visible reward, which is why you need to be mindful of God. Only seeing things from God's perspective will get you through when there are no earthly signs of reward. But we know this about God from Psalm 31.19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of man. So God has so much goodness laid up for us, for his people who are mindful of him and who endure suffering unjustly. He has so much laid up, so much good laid up for us. He gives us special honor. Maybe when you're struggling under some injustice, at your workplace or in life, and you're bearing it the best that you can, maybe the thing you need to know in that moment is God's smile. Maybe the thing that would really get you through in that moment would not be whatever the reward is down the road, but just right now, God, are you pleased with me? And he says, oh, yes, I am. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, I credit you. I credit you for enduring that, for going through that for resisting the temptation to lash out and just be like what everybody else would do. Oh yeah, I'm pleased. I want you to feel my pleasure. That could get you through. And it's true. Here's the second thing that we should be mindful of while suffering unjustly. It's knowing that God has called you to it. God has called you to it. Verse 21, For to this you have been called. To what have you been called? To do good and suffer for it, with endurance being mindful of God. God's called you to experience that as a Christian. He's chosen it for you. Now I have to say at first blush, I don't really like the sound of that. I mean, you mean to tell me, Lord, that suffering injustice is part of the deal? That that's my road? That's my calling? That I should expect this in life, undergoing unjust suffering? I find that unsettling. That you would intentionally put that in my path. I don't really see the good in that. I don't 
I think I want that. I don't know how that knowledge helps me endure sorrows. <laughs> but clearly this is here to give us strength to endure. So how does it? And I can think of two ways it helps us to know that we are called to this. At first, it means that our unjust suffering is purposeful, not random. Our unjust suffering is purposeful, not random. It's been chosen by God, not by our employer or by whoever else is the perpetrator. To, to use language from chapter 1, verse 6, it is necessary suffering. For a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, Peter said. So if God is directing it, then it must be because it's a necessary part of his loving management of my life. It's intended to do us some ultimate good, like lay up rewards in heaven, for example. So that's one way that it helps us to know that we're called to this. But this knowledge that God has called us to endure unjust suffering helps in another way also. And this is the one that Peter really emphasizes here in the passage. It's because God intends to make us more like Christ through it. He intends to make us more like Christ through this. To finish verse 21, To this you have been called because... Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. God wants you to follow Christ's example of enduring sorrows while suffering unjustly, being mindful of God. He wants you to do that. He wants you to walk in his steps. He wants you to, to go where Jesus has gone. Sometimes we talk about becoming like Christ, and typically we think of that as becoming more loving, um, less sinful, more full of faith, less worldly, things like that. Think, we think about character, we think about personal holiness, when we think of Christ-likeness, and for sure that's part of it. But to be genuinely Christ-like also means walking as he did through unjust suffering. Whether that is suffering at the hands of unjust employers or anybody else, that's the path we're to walk as Christians. Jesus set the example. The Lord wants us to follow it. And again, I asked, well, how does that knowledge give me strength to endure? Okay, I can see that I'm supposed to walk in his steps and, and suffer as he suffered in injustice, but how does that... How does that help me? What's, what's that going to do for me? What's the, I need to know why that's good. And I think it's this. There's a particular comfort and strength that comes from experiencing what Jesus experienced in some measure. There is a comfort. There is a strength that comes from walking in his steps to know that we're going through what Christ went through to some degree. It draws us closer to Him. It, it connects us more to Him, not just theoretically, not just mentally, things that we know, but relationally, experientially. I'm actually, I actually know now a little bit about what it was like for Jesus because now I'm going through something like that. 
The best way to really understand Jesus is to walk in his steps. Going through it helps us appreciate what he did for us. It says, Christ suffered for you in the text. It was unjust suffering. Think about what he went through. Peter goes on to tell us in verse 22, he says, Jesus committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Just think about this. If you ever feel like you've been wronged, think about Jesus. Sinless. Never did one thing that would deserve suffering. Always did what was right. Always, always. But they called him a gluttonous man and a drunkard. They called him a blasphemer. They said he was empowered by the devil, casting out demons by Beelzebul. They plotted to kill him. They paid somebody to betray him. They spit on him. They struck him in the face. They handed him over to Pilate to be scourged and crucified. All this suffering... And all of it was completely unjust. He committed no sin. But what did he do? Did he retaliate? Did he demand his rights? Did he gather a coalition of people to defend him? No, none of that. He had the opportunity. I could call a legion of angels right now if I wanted to, but I'm not going to because I've come for some reason. I've come for my people. I've come to heal them. And I will do this. It says he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He trusted God. He put himself in, put the whole situation into God's hands. And then he walked through it. And he did that for you. And he did that for me. Because it was necessary. Luke 9.22, the Son of Man must suffer many things. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is what it look, looks like. This is what it took to pay the penalty for our sin. Enduring unjust suffering. And the best way to really understand that, to enter into it, is to go through something like that yourself. You try to obey Jesus in something, you identify yourself with him, and you get mocked, you get reviled. You might be discriminated against because of your faith. You might be the butt of jokes and gossip and slander and avoidance. You might get fired. People might treat you like dirt, and it hurts. It's not right. But then you resist that temptation to retaliate, and you don't seek to get even, and you endure mindful of God, mindful of Jesus, having walked this road ahead of you. And then you think, this is what it must have felt like 
This is what it cost him. This is what he did to save me. Get a greater appreciation for verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. It's a very personal, very intimate description of Christ's atoning death on the cross. He himself bore our sins. It's emphatic in the Greek. He himself bore our sins. It was personal to him, and it was specific to you. He said to the Father, charge that to me. Consider me guilty of what each of my people have done. Deal with me on that. Give me their punishment. Do with me as you would have done with Mark or fill in your name. It was personal. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So when you feel that sting of being wronged, and yet you endure, let it lead to this thought. Jesus suffered far more than this, but he endured it for me. It's a privilege to follow in his steps, patiently bearing my own cross of suffering after him. When you endure sorrows while suffering unjustly at somebody's hands, you honor Christ. You live out the parable of his suffering for you and for the sins of the world. People wonder, why don't you retaliate? And you, why don't you retaliate? And you can say, well, because Jesus has shown me a different way. He endured unjust suffering too, and he did it to pay for my sins. It's a privilege to imitate him. Unjust suffering that's mindful of God will draw us closer to Christ, and it's good to be close to Christ. Psalm 73, 28 says, But as for, me, as for me, the nearness of God is my good. And this brings you nearer to God. One last thing to be mindful of while suffering unjustly. This is knowledge of God that will bring you through. It's knowing that God will bring ultimate justice. God will bring ultimate justice. Text says that when Jesus suffered, he did not threaten, but in, continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. There is ultimate justice in the world. There is a judge who will settle all accounts, who will see to it that no one gets away with evil. As Abraham said to the angel of the Lord who visited him, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the answer is, yes, he will. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Nahum 1.3. You see, the reason that we have an impulse to get justice when we've been wronged is because God has put it in our hearts that there is right and there is wrong and that wrong should be punished. We instinctively know this. Even the atheist who says there is no God will want justice if he's wronged, which is in itself an argument for the existence of God. We know that something's been broken there. 
In her testimony at the sentencings of her abuser, Rachel Denhollander quoted something C.S. Lewis said when he reflected back on on his atheism, something that helped her get through her trial of being grievously wronged. And here's what she said. She said this to her abuser. Throughout this process, I have clung to a quote by C.S. Lewis where he says, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how did I get this idea of just, unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he first has some idea of straight. What was I comparing the universe to when I called it unjust? Larry, I can tell I can call what you did evil and wicked because it was, and I know it was evil and wicked because the straight line exists. So friends, we all know that the straight line exists. There are some things that are evil and need to be punished in order to uphold the good. We know there needs to be justice when we suffer unjustly, and we can't live with the idea that there will be no justice. So when people who have no hope in a God of justice, they have no choice but to either get bitter or get even when they are wronged. But you will do something. Because you can't live with that. And that is the wellspring of a great deal of sin as a reaction to sin. But when we are mindful of God, we know that there will be justice. God will bring it. We can follow Paul's exhortation in Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Every sin will be met with God's wrath. God's wrath is actually a part of his glory that when you've been wronged, you get, and you're glad it's there. (laughs) I'm glad there is ultimate justice. You need to be that way, God. You are love, you are mercy, but you are also wrath in its appropriate time. That is right, and I'm glad that's there. Every sin meets with God's wrath. The only question is whether Jesus bore that wrath for you or you will bear it in your unrepentance. But the judge of the earth will surely do what is right. There will be justice. So we can live with that. So if you're passed over for promotions that you deserve, if you're yelled at, constantly, if you're not paid fairly, if you're blamed for other people's mistakes, if you're slandered, if you're mistreated for doing good as a Christian, and there seems to be no recourse, no justice, be mindful of God. Entrust yourself to God. He will make all things right in the end. He calls himself in verse 25, our shepherd and the overseer of our souls. The common thing about both of those titles is that they are people who have responsibility to take care of something. God claims responsibility to take care of you. God knows what you go through, and he's going to take care of it. He's going to take care of it the right way, in a way that you're going to be glad about. So, to close, the exhortation of the passage is clear. Entrust yourself and your hard situations to God who judges justly. 
By all means, be like the persistent widow in the parable and ask God for justice in this life. Even the Psalms are full of prayers for justice and vindication. We want that. Pray for that. Absolutely do that. But you may not see that vindication and that justice until the final day. Meanwhile, our path is to be mindful of God when suffering unjustly. Know that he will be proud of you for enduring sorrows like Jesus did. He will reward you for it. Know that you have been called to this because it brings you closer to Christ. And that's good for us. And know that there is ultimate justice. God will settle all accounts in the end. May he give us grace to do that. Let's pray. How wonderful, Lord, to know that there is a sovereign ruler over this world and that you are good and that you rule for our good and that you only appoint for us that which is necessary for our growth in Christ-likeness for our ultimate good. It's good to know, Lord, that we're in your hands. It's good to know that when we suffer wrongly, that it's going to be okay. (laughs) Thank you for that hope, Lord. It's made ours, I know, through Jesus who bore our sins in his body. Help us to now live to righteousness and die to sin in that goodness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.